just made. So we're not going to do this. forthcoming from the big press, takes place in a forest. The word for world is forest. The world is a yard, a lobby, a staircase, a lounge, a room, a hall. It is a man on vacation or assignment, assigned to chill out in a curative region, troubling the dialectic of hot knot between joy, suffering, beauty, vacancy, life, death, troubling the voice into intensive utterance, there is, Abramovitz writes, of course, a form for all this, in unspoken language and an unguessed-at consequence. Godard's latest film says goodbye to language, works that impossibility into ecology, showing a forest easy, but showing a room with a forest nearby difficult, pronounces the film's disembodied narrator. What happens in loss, in trauma, in intimacy, in sensory ethnography, in somatic experience, when we can't see the tree for the forest. There is terror here in the forest, Abramovitz writes in a tall, dark mathematics. There is terror here in the forest in the way I look at you. What happens in such mutated states of not blessed? Not blessed, Abramovitz's 2012 title from the Thief Press, is laced with a journey toward a forbidden forest. At the cusp, at the cusp of identity, memory. Over the cup of singularity, a man locks eyes with the doppelganger, the police officer, the grandmother, the reader. Abramovitz does not say goodbye to language. He and his texts encounter it over and over, a rich renell, an accompaniment for wandering a dark wood, a reinvestment of laboring desire. We are always talking, Abramovitz writes, in Dear, Dearly Departed. We are talking about traps, perhaps, and I had my shoes on, I had new shoes on, and this is a trap. The world is a trap. Please join me in welcoming Carol DeBarnett. From, from actually actually one part of what you referenced, and that's like Kismet. So I'm going to read from uh, from this book called Dear Dearly Departed for, for a couple minutes. I put on my glasses so I can see it. So now I can't see you, which is the best part, and I can only see the, the text, which makes me very happy. Okay. But you can hear me? That's right? Okay. All right. Uh, oops. Okay. Dear Dearly Departed, I am writing this letter to you. Dearly Departed, and though it pains me, a circumstance, I live on the fence, the fence is red, behave yourself. Dear, dearly departed, the form of this letter, of this letter, and the kind of. Dear, dearly departed, stop me if you've heard this before, or. 
Dear, dearly departed, I could have been someone special. I could have told you lies. I look in the window. I look at the place you live. I live where you used to live. And I am there all the time. Or, dear, dearly departed, it is not up to me to quote. The words are not mine. I can only look in the mirror every so often. I can only guess. And the dying, and you, dearly departed, and you drop a dime. It can only be you. There can be no harm in knowing. And I know, too, I am yours, dearly departed, with a foot, feet, and shoes for your feet. Dear, dearly departed, the letters I write, how healthy and fit I can be, how healthy and fit I can be when and only when I see your name. I used to be an ass, a total loser, and then I met you. Oh, you, dearly departed, and you are the one. Of this I am certain, and then dearly depart, and then dearly departed, and then this because I love you. I am in the middle of the road. I am walking along along the road when I see this, or you. I see this vision of you on the road, and I am on the street. The road is where I currently exist. It is where I am, and I miss you, or I realize I miss you. Yes, this is the same name, the same excuse I used the last time we met, and that time, and that time, dearly departed. Do you remember me? Dear, dearly departed, I am charged up. I am charged up all the time, and it is all because of you. Dearly departed, dearly departed, a thousand and one times, and all of this because of you, because of the way you are, because of what you do. And this, of course, and this is, of course, only the beginning. It is only the beginning of things. It is only the beginning of this time and this place. And then I dance. I begin to dance in a circle. The circle I made was mine. It was very special. You, dearly departed, should have been there. And you could have been there. Yes, you could have been there if you had chosen to be there, if you had chosen me, chosen to falsify me, chosen to con confront me in just that way. And then I am wearing a hat, and the world is convinced that I am, convinced of what I am. And this time, the controlling, the gesture controlling me, or you, goes on. It is what it is. And I am no one but myself. I work too hard. There are too many. Dear, dearly departed, when you fly, when truly you fly, and I was in a room, and the room was dark, and I was in a dark room, and there were colors there. I looked in the room where you slept. I believe that you slept in a room then, and the room was as bright as a rainbow, like a dream, yes, more like a dream, and the time before that. It was cold. There was a clock on the wall. There was a dedication to someone famous in the house or in the book I was reading. I was reading a book, and it was cold, and you, dearly departed, lived on a farm, and it was cold, and there was no fire, and there was no way out. We lived in a world, and the room was cold, and there was no way out. You lived on a farm. I could almost swear that I was talking to you, just as I am writing to you now. And I know, I do know, I know what I know. I know you. You are my dearly departed. Dear dearly departed, there are traps. This letter is perhaps just such a trap. This letter is just the type of trap we were always talking about. We were always talking about traps, about this letter, about just this type of trap. We were always talking. We were talking about traps, perhaps, like this letter. By the lake one night, and it was cold, and I had my shoes on. I had new shoes on, and this is a trap. The world is a trap. The day you took me by the hand, I was on a wall. I was on a wall, and there was a good chance that I'd fallen, that I'd already fallen. This letter, a trap, attention, but no, that's wrong. It is not the way things went. We did not know each other then, but then I was there. I was home again, and it was anything goes. It was anything goes, and just as suddenly. And then I lay down. I say good night. I'm afraid, Jerry departed. I'm afraid, and you can see why. Dear Julie departed, it is here on this wall. I have a charm. It is the way I see. It is the way I see you when I look in the window. I get down on my knees. 
I am dirty from always being on my knees, from my kneeling at your door, from looking in the window. I am on the street, and the day is cold, and there is no one home. You, dearly departed, have left me again, and I am all alone. There is no one in the house, and there has been no telephone call. Dear, dearly departed, the tree I used to climb by your house is gone. It is gone, and I don't know why. I am in tears, and then I think of the tree by your house, and the tears stop. I stop crying. I am running. I am thinking of what I'd like to say to you. I know that you know that I know how it's done. I wish I was eating in a restaurant. I'm all alone. I have a box of cookies in my hand. I've been reduced to the state I used to be in. I used to know you. I used to hold your hand. And then the world was new. It was new and there was a place to go and there were people and there were things. I used to see you dearly departed, sitting in the corner of the room and holding yourself, holding yourself close to yourself. It is so difficult to be born. Being born, it is so difficult to speak to you this way. And I was the worst, and I lived in a room, and I talked to myself, and I had visions. I mean, there were things I saw. I saw things, some things, clearly. And it was a day, and I sat at a table, and across from you. I came to the table, I put my hands up, I talked a lot. There were no lies, no lies. The list was like a long hand, like an offer. It had to be a hand, an offer. Dear Julie departed, they opened the door and look into the room, and I am here alone. I know you are somewhere good. I know you, dearly departed, the way you move, the way you use your hands. But that is not at all true. It is not at all true that I know anything about you. Your hands are yours, of course. And I have never seen, have never had the privilege of watching you work with your hands. The way you work with your hands, the way you work. It could have been something. There could have been places. And in those places, there could have been curtains and pillows. It would drive you crazy, of course. The way people look at me. I am a true-hearted person. I am loyal. I love. I live. I love. It's not true, of course. I am just what I am, just what I want to be. And you, and you, you, dearly departed, are what you are. It is extra. There is a little bit more in the bag, in the nest, a whole world of tears. It is in the bag, and there is a whole world of tears. But you could have held me, you know. You could have taken me, saved me. But then you did or you didn't, and I don't remember who you are. Dearly departed, dearly departed, the whole time, and then you live alone. Dear, dearly departed, you shall remain in a base, a split, a theme, the one in the middle of the street. I lived in a cave. I had waited in spite of myself. There was something about the place and about all the people. Dear, dearly departed, I have become ragged. I have waited to tell you. I have waited to tell you that you are desired. I have waited to tell you that you are loved and that I am paralyzed. It is opening. It was an eye-opening experience, if I do say so myself. And there is no truth to the matter. And there is steam on the street, and there are stairs all around us in the cave, and we are different people. We show one another that we are different people every time we touch hands, every time we find ourselves in the other's heart. We are moving and moving. We are moving, and the moving causes us to dream, causes us to go to another place. We are where we are, and then we move. It corresponds, and there is a whole world there. But none of this makes any sense. We have no sense and feel no terror, and we are bad, bad at what we do. And there are reasons for this. But you were on a mountaintop, and the pain was great, and there was no one home, and the weather was bad, and that was not a song about people. Songs about people would have been against the rules. And, dear Julie departed, you have grown up, you have changed. The hours have turned dangerous, in a sense. There was a lemon on the grass, a green lawn, leveling out, a calming of the tides. Each day it took us to new places, to greener, evergreener pastures. We rode and rode, waited and waited. It was exciting to hear you sing. Dearly departed on the grass. Dearly departed resting, your head and your shoulders. It was very intimate. Still the glass broke, and so did other things. 
There was a party, a real party in that time. There was a party, flavors and permission and walking along the alley. The whole romance, the whole flavor of the day, of the way you moved, dearly departed. You moved in such a way, but shut up. You said that, didn't you? The whole question, your name. Dear dearly departed, there's been an attack, a whole dipping down or a bending, if you will, a whole day of sunshine wasted, an attack, and the people are crippled, and there is no way in. You are just what you are. You are and you aren't. You are and you aren't. Dearly departed. Thank you. Flora, forthcoming from Lafitte Press, takes place in a garden. I mean, an era of formal exhaustion. I mean, <laughs> the ambition to pre-signify, go wild, which is to say, sustainable, bearable, which is not to say, but to do. I bring the irises to the iris, Amanda Ackerman writes. Ackerman facilitates poetry in collaboration with plants, programmer poet Dan Reichert, electrical charge, sonic frequencies, numbers, words. By oscillating, as Jacques Rancière writes, between points in the distribution of the sensible, artworks serve to expose and destabilize dichotomies. This is autonomy and contingency. This is communication and irreducible difference. In the book of, floral, of Feral Flora, Sorrel and Rose, two sisters, occupy the belly of a whale. They dare to be exuberant about their conjuncture. Like Ackerman's non-human collaborators, they play with Schlotsky's defamiliarizing poetics or pounds to make new, not merely to point toward wellness, intimacy, desire, or other dilemmas of post-colonial late capitalism, but to tear them down, grow them up, feral. If only we could see the effects of our actions in the world more immediately, Ackerman writes in I Fell in Love with a Monster Truck. Yes, I'd like to know better my body. I want to love as a terraforming event. Love, Badu writes, confronting a new way of experiencing time. I want, drawing from Ackerman's The Seasons Cemented, to open and close like a car door again. Again, we meet the Mertonelle as Ackerman's uncultivated gardens become Abramovitz's forests, and vice versa, again. Again, please join me in welcoming uh, artists to the stage, Amanda Ackerman. <laughs> Two sisters who lived in the belly of a whale for six months, 
but forget me. Oh, the weight of the heart. I should have lulled you into this story more before mentioning this heavy, dripping heart. I could sweetly bludgeon you later, but I tend to blurt out my secrets. I raised carrier pigeons. I liked geometry. I was numb. I was dead. Personally, I can't say that I'm not scared of death and ghosts. As soon as we consider the body itself, we think of this living flesh as a banner for fitness, but already one day dead. Of the two sisters, Sorrel's face had the potential to one day become haunted. Rose, on the other hand, had a face for the new millennium, a perfect balance of masculine and feminine traits. But I'm always returning to the heart's weight. The heart's weight, it looks like a ship's anchor, a distorted pink diamond, a bloated locket forged from a ton of brass, a granite wrecking ball, too many fractures. I leave it in the ground. I pretend to bury things in the spring. I pretend my heart is light. I am making choices at all times. For six months, or 184 days, the two sisters lived in the belly of the giant whale. On day 21, the mud on Sorrel's feet had finally dried. There was a muddy garden inside the whale's stomach. Sorrel had a habit of always walking barefoot in there. I can't explain to you what mud feels like inside a whale. It nears a boiling point and the texture is unfamiliar. The mud would cling to Sorrel's feet like a rue. She began to chisel the cake mud on her feet with her nails. Her nails were lacquered but dirty. Rose says to Sorrel on day 21, every day we are killing off parts of ourselves, but you are killing off the wrong part of yourself. That is the worst choice a person can make. Sorrel replies, but what have we to live for, sister? If you think of the whale's stomach like a coral bed in which every part needs every other part, the whale's stomach is in itself an entity, but its existence is intertwined and co-emergent with the amalgam of all the whale's other organs and the totality of the whale itself. At times, the stomach takes an interest in the sister's conversations and listens in. It interjects, I die daily, I die momentarily, I die from a broken shell, I die so I die, I die forlorn in the watery cold, and I die like an umbrella in the restless red heat, in fog I die, I die haloed, I die slippery and dreaming, floating on fossils, and so I die, and I die again. Sometimes the great belly murmurs only to itself. The sisters will overhear it speaking out loud in a steady stream of words, never pausing to breathe, and the sisters will feel guilty for eavesdropping, they hear it say, I try, I try, I try, I try, I try. In the belly of the whale is a ruined garden. Rose and Sorrel like living in the ruins because it is romantic. The fences are gone, the stone path is gone, the foam flowers and undulating lawn are gone. Before being swallowed by the whale, Sorrel had been pregnant for three months. But here, inside the whale, she cannot be. There are certain rules of nature, and one rule is that a person can't be pregnant inside a whale's belly. She hopes that when she's flung out of the whale's mouth, she will find herself pregnant again, maybe with a son who will possess the right kind of male energy, a son for the future millennium who will grow up to be neither hateful nor aggressive. There are many yellow triangles floating around the interior of the whale's stomach. They mostly just float in the air. When the sisters get bored, they try to catch them. At about five months in, everyone, sisters, belly, whale, amalgam, truly felt like a fluctuating single unit like an assemblage of changing volume. There was a feeling of belonging, of not being alone, of not being incidental. It was a very real physical sensation, as real as any other kind of physical sensation. So they all remained. What's it like to be swallowed by a whale? It's a proverbial day out of time, but not numb, not a void because there's too much stirring. The sisters slept naked because of the, the volcanic heat. They still put on clothes if they suspected it was daytime in the outside world. Before being swallowed by the whale, Sorrel had lived with her husband in a second-story apartment. 
Their apartment had a slightly unlived-in feeling. Upon entering the apartment, you would know instantly that no one would ever be born there. The sisters would eventually be released from the stomach of the great whale, which means Sorrel would eventually be pregnant again. She would have her baby, a son, in the hospital. Inside the apartment is a comfortable sage couch, but an awful brass standing lamp. The master bedroom has a door that latches on the outside. There is very mild robin's egg paint in the guest room. Now I have confused myself between land and sea. On the day before she was swallowed, Sorrel had been wearing a light blue formal dress. The dress was the same color as the walls of the apartment's guest room. Bird's egg colored, draped wanly pale and synthetic. She thought the dress was gorgeous. She was looking for an occasion to wear it out in public. Once in a while, she would take it off its hanger and try it on. She would stare at herself in the mirror, ceremonially twisting her long hair in a knot on her head. She looked pretty in the dress. It made her feel like marriage had been a good idea. If only she had an excuse to wear it out, a dinner party or a nice restaurant. The sisters were not especially close, although they liked each other. They talked on the phone once a month. It was summer, and during one of their monthly phone conversations, they had made a plan to visit the ocean. On the day before she was swallowed by the great whale, Rose was sitting at a plain new corkboard desk, enjoying the simplicity of having time to herself. She'd also just bought a new laptop. The matter at hand was financial and practical. She was brainstorming ways to start an at-home business. She wanted to be self-employed. She had gone into credit card debt in order to invest in her future, as she did not have enough money to pay for the laptop outright. Sometimes people have to be very strategic and practical in order to get what they want. Sometimes a woman has to invest in herself. Sorrel loved going to restaurants with her husband. Sorrel loved to watch people staring at menus. Here's an argument that Sorrel had with her husband the evening before she met up with her sister at the beach. The blue dress was now back on its hanger in the closet. Her husband didn't take her out nearly enough, although they were on a budget and saving for the baby. But the little romance was what the relationship was lacking. She would like an excuse to wear a nice dress, like a dinner party or a nice restaurant. She worked too hard at her job and was bored when she was not working and her husband didn't take her out barely at all. A little romance was what was needed to make this whole thing worth it. He was putting on weight, she was becoming gaunt, her face was becoming haunted. Just to go out a few times a month here and there to a park, a restaurant, good food, tenderness, they would hold hands, they would reconnect, so many new places to try, that would fix it. Blue and yellow light of the candle in a restaurant in the evening, he didn't pay enough attention to her. She had so much to say. She was bored when she wasn't working. He was boring when he wasn't working. It didn't feel like he had too much to say these days. He was putting on weight. He worked too hard. She worked too hard. They both did. A little romance would fix it. Just go out to a restaurant a couple times a month, reconnect. They could afford it if they wanted to. Not really heaven and earth, just a little romance. Some good food, holding hands, holding hands on the city sidewalk. She had so much to say. Just a little mutual attention, a little out of the ordinary mutual affection would fix it. He was not looking his best. She was starting to look gaunt. She had so much to say. It would be easy to fix, but he wasn't agreeing. The stomach of the whale speaks, and all the different parts of the whale speak, and the whale as a whole speaks, and the whale and the ocean together as one formation speak. The order is first birth, then nourishment, then rage. Never mind me though, I've been angry, I've lost my heart, I've been dead, I have terrible opinions, I'm bad at happiness. Sorrel craves pineapple, she would give anything for it. I'm gonna stop there with that piece and then really quickly just read you one translation. Um, so I'll first read the first version of the text and then I'll read um, what an iris did as a translation. Uh, the title is Shipping. I bring irises to the iris, Spanned, dyed, bridged, field, hide low. 
hidden rest, strife, the face, fair, copy, sweet earth, controlled, fabled, found, chain, control, blink, a key, being, banter, a flare, a dream, sparks, blossoming, pale, arc, chameleon, the soul, the eye, the artist brain, following, pausing, standing, out of reach, accord, accord, canvas, allure, a portal, a helmet, a head, I give, I beckon, cool repose, I bear, I hope to see the birth of gentler children, I So this is written by Iris. Dream, I, brain, soul. A blossoming banter, sparks. A flare, flare, a flare. Key, beam, key, beam. Blossoming, a, a, a banter. Control, banter. A found, a pale, dream. Control, the arc, sweet pale, face. Chameleon, blank, bear. The eye, the uh, arc, eye. I, canvas, face, field, banter, cord, copy, rest, a beam, dream, blossoming of bring, bear, link, low, at, at the birth, hidden, controlled, a flare, blossoming, controlled, fabled, copied, die, to birth, cool, repose, beckon, a, a portal, a, a cord, canvas, I, cord, artist, soul, soul, flare, a key, blink, Copy the strife, the strife, hidden, 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 high face, hidden rest, hidden rest, low, high died, iris died, eye of sea, sea, hope of gentler, gentler, shipping of sea, the birth, birth, shipping, eye to irises, to field, low, field, high, hidden rest, rest, the face, copy, sweet, the face, face, the bear, the bear, rest, sweet, bear, hidden low, hidden field, low, low, banter rest, I bring irises. project that is a book of allegories that kind of form a narrative, or it's a book of narratives that kind of form an allegory, right? And it's called uh, Man's Wars and Wickedness, a book of proposed remedies and extreme formulations for curing hostility, rivalry, and ill will. By Amanda Ackerman. So we're, we're going to read a few sections from that. Okay. I go first? The stranger attempted to study the walk scientifically. And it is strange when they walk that way, when they are walking a lot at night these days. It is strange to be stuck in such a place at such a time, thinks Mr. Jones. It is strange, or was strange, or is strange still, but then I am confused. There are manifestos on the street. There are salespeople trying to sell plants and seeds, amazing plants and seeds, they claim, millions and millions of them. And as usual, the salespeople are speaking and speaking and not listening to what they're saying, not paying attention to how their words, that is, their sales pitches, jingles, advertising, are going over with their own potential customers or with the world at large. And this becomes a flood. 
You could have had a different outcome, you know, Jones, says Dr. Honorable. There were any number of possibilities available at the time. It is not often that Dr. Honorable will extend his considerable services to one who is not in direct need of them, that is, to one who is already dead. But in the special case of Mr. Jones, Dr. Honorable is happy to make an exception. And besides, it has been a slow morning, and he has nothing better to do. You didn't have to look down, Jones. You could have simply trusted your fate. I mean, something would have happened eventually. You didn't have to know the specific course. And now it has transformed anyway. It has transformed without you. In fact, truth be told, it is spoken about in growing terms these days, if you know what I mean. Know what I mean? Do you know what I mean, Mr. Jones? And how is it that you even know about me, asked Mr. Jones. Hey, do you want to know about the cure or not, Jones? I don't have all day. How you can even find the energy to pretend at this point is beyond me. You are a case study, Mr. Jones, an anomaly. Dr. Honorable sighs. There is a beautiful view of the rolling hills of Swabia on the horizon. There is a beautiful view of the sea. Medicine fixes and cures, and the problems of medicine fixes and cures disappear within the beautiful view. The road Dr. Honorable has traveled to be at Mr. Jones's side has, along with all roads, it seems, disappeared. Still, one can't see things clearly. One can't see things clearly because there are millions and millions of pages blowing around everywhere. Manifestos, prescriptions for cures, lost knowledge, various medical tracks, the remnants, the cast-offs, the residue, and remainders of a stupid fucking world filling up every space. It has become a flood, a disaster of epic proportions. I am scared, says Mr. Jones. <laughs> what are you scared of, asks Dr. Honorable. I am scared of sickness and disease and malaise and stagnation and depression. Really? Dr. Honorable is surprised. You never seem scared. You really are scared, Jones? Really? I am scared or I am tired. I tried to talk to you about it before, actually at our last appointment, if you remember. I did try. I saw those books, the manifestos, the medical tracks, and that unfinished translation of the Bible with my own two eyes. In fact, the street was full of millions and millions of books. They looked flimsy. I remember thinking that it was lucky the wind wasn't blowing. Thus, what we have here is a case, thinks Dr. Honorable, shaking his head as if to ward off evil. And I shall call this case, case study number 193, or rather, it is very powerful to attempt to fix that which is broken. Because we share the same atmosphere, the Swabian paper mill set out to study and associate its products with ecologically sound practices scientifically. This could have been a manifesto fluttering in the street. There was trouble at the Swabian paper mill until turkeys that live free in the forests. We have chosen to associate some of our products with turkeys that are too fat to be flyers. Because they share the same atmosphere with free-flying turkeys, we have decided to associate our too fat to fly turkeys with such free-flying turkeys in order to help our environment. Because some good people have chosen to help save the environment, we have chosen to associate with them. Since we share an atmosphere and hence are related to them in this way, we at the Swabian Paper Company have chosen such associations for our products in order to be helpful and caring. Medical Tract sought out to study endless paperwork scientifically. Dr. Honorable has returned to work at the Swabian Medical College. He is lecturing, giving a demonstration of sorts in a large operating theater slash classroom. There are very few open seats. The Swabian medical students are generally excellent, engaged, well-meaning, a happy band, so to speak, 
happy for the privilege to learn what they are learning from someone as seemingly capable as Dr. Honorable. What we have here is a case, begins Dr. Honorable, a case study, if you will. In fact, I call this particular case study, ta-da, case study number 193, or rather, it is very powerful to attempt to fix that which is broken. It doesn't work so well, does it, Jones? I mean, when you try to talk about it. And, by the way, don't think I didn't notice the way you looked at those pages. In fact, I don't blame you. Millions and millions of pages fluttering around in the street are a little hard not to envy. However, someone did have to write all that stuff, you know. And here you are, just lying dead in your patch of grass, feeling hurt, feeling neglected. Don't you get that other people feel the same things you feel, Mr. Jones? Why it's universal. Why everything is connected. Just think of the poor fool who lost all those pages in the first place. Manifestos, prescriptions for cures, arcane knowledge, various medical tracks were crying out loud. A manifesto, a magnum opus by the looks of it. And what's more, you don't even seem to realize the pressure I'm under, the way I've extended myself on your behalf, the service to humankind I'm performing by treating you. Jones, you can't even begin to imagine the effort it takes to treat, or rather, cure that which is already dead and gone. By Job, it is easy to forget, yet one must never forget. And do you really think you're going to find anyone in the medical industry who cares more than me, Jones? And where would comparable high-quality treatment and care be found, Protel? Growing on trees, blowing around on the street, and for free, no less? Why, there isn't an insurance company in the land that would be willing to pay good money against such an obvious and rather egregious, if you don't mind my saying, pre-existing condition. Death, paper cuts, manifestos, what the hell is the difference? Indeed, any insurance company worth its name would be well within its rights if it chose to waste your eternity with endless paperwork just for thinking of making a claim against this. And what do you think the world would look like after that kind of delay, Mr. Jones? Manifestos, lost knowledge, various medical tracks, lost prescriptions for cures, millions and millions of pages, why that would be just the beginning. Cause for concern sought out to study big cigarettes scientifically. Esmeralda was up again late into the night, breathing against an open window, looking at the black sky and the blue stars. It was that Tom, he was always so relaxed, so like a tortoise, a folding chair, the opposite of a glass window or tacky curtains. He seemed so terrific on the surface, always lounging under that big oak tree, eating a damn peach, laughing. He was attractive because of his good health. His skin was gilded with the thermal waters of Swabia. No one seemed as healthy as Tom Terrific. No one's muscles seemed as healthy as Tom's. No one's gait was as casual and entitled. He was all cheap. But he had that terrible habit, always rolling and stuffing big cigarettes, playing the magic trick where he would roll them in between each finger faster than the eye could detect. Was that the habit or addiction that would get him in the end? When Esmeralda walked beneath the tree in the grassy meadow, he would always call out to her. His voice seemed true enough, full of relaxed substance and principle, and neither one in excess. He said, I can see the whole sweep of the land from here in its entirety, the whole Swabian coast. Let me take you out sometime, to the movies or to a restaurant, one with candles and bad electricity, and homemade red sauce and horse sauce. It will be more than pleasant. He stood as if he held many meadows in his fist. She noticed that he was looking out over the vista, down on all the little black Swabian flags jutting out of the tile rooftops, each one rippling in the same way like the tails of black fish doggedly parting water. She felt the wind rising from the cliffs, and there was salt in the air. He always looked out and over, versus at something. She would say to him, no one can see anything in, it, in its entirety. And she would continue to walk wherever it was that she was heading. 
But one day, Tom Terrific wore her down. Perhaps it was his great health, or the goddamn peach, or perhaps it was election year rhetoric. Everyone's thoughts were skewed back and forth between charitable motives and skepticism. Do you really want to take me out, she said. Do you even know how much things cost these days? Tom Terrific, biting into an apple, replied, well, you still see me laughing. That's what rebellion is all about. Esmeralda bought herself a new green dress, forest green, cut to flatter, and made to make her look beautiful. And at dinner, she tried to order the most appropriate item on the menu. The menu was categorized according to humor and type, salty, bitter, sour, and sweet, vegetable, fish, fowl, and others. She ordered a glass of gooseberry wine and an acorn salad with spinach and horse dressing. She talked about the frightening patterns in the weather. But Tom Terrific was staring out the window, parting the curtains in the restaurant. Such nice curtains, red and gauzy and still, well-sewn and tidy, such good taste. I will go back to the tree and smoke a fig cigarette. I will go back there and die a slow death. And your views on the universe are all wrong. He did not realize that he had said the last two statements out loud. Esmeralda had more than cause for concern. She handed him a small piece of paper. She had gone through this once before with a friend. Call this clinician, she admonished, for he is quite honorable, I think, in my esteem. She was very disappointed. Tom Terrific had started to look handsome over dinner, had started to sound not dissimilar to an odd lot intellectual or an eccentric manifesto, and she was a hard one to please. Secretly, before they parted ways, she stole a fig cigarette from out of his shirt pocket and put it in her purse. For later, she thought, knowing that when the spirit suffers, so does the body. They call the reverse process the end spiritual or cause for concern, the body influencing the spirit right back. Four humorists sought out to study the cause scientifically. An ordinary Swabian citizen's first mistake was trying to decide how much things cost. After all, a half-eaten and thoughtlessly discarded lunch can be more expensive than a fake cigarette if one really wants it to be. But that logic would make any ordinary Swabian citizen cringe, and one should never give the impression of living too large off the land, especially if you are looking to impress the fact upon ordinary Swabian citizens, that is, Lord Burlington sneers. In fact, a problem occurs every time an ordinary Swabian citizen raises his or her hand, and there is a danger in the end of the self being lost, if that makes sense. Lord Burlington puts down his pointer and stands hands on hips. The lecture is over, but there is a beautiful blue ox on a grassy meadow, and I just can't remember the names of all the different types of orchids. There are so many of them. And they are so varied, and sometimes I wish I were dead. Well, Jones, says Lord Burlington, laughing, if you just stopped looking in the mirror, you probably would have noticed by now. There is a large audience for Lord Burlington's lecture series that night. They come to watch the singing and dancing, the carousing and fire. I can't be seen from the top of the hill, thinks Mr. Jones. I will go there and die a slow death. I am so humiliated. Well, Jones, says Lord Burlington, laughing, if you just stopped looking in the mirror, you probably would have noticed by now. Mr. Jones reaches the top of the hill. He is laughing at his own good health. He is in quite good health despite his age. And funny, because Tom Terrific smokes too many fixed cigarettes and can climb the hill and take his seat just fine. And funny, because Tom Terrific has smoked a fixed cigarette every single day since he was nine years old and still can do the meanest jig of all when there is dancing under the gazebo after Lord Burlington's lecture series. In fact, Tom Terrific is terrific because of how many fixed cigarettes he consumes in a day and because of how much he chokes and coughs and the ways in which he loves Esmeralda in spite of it all. It is heady stuff at Lord Burlington's lecture series that night. 
and he does sad stuff as well. Mr. Jones is puffing his chest in and out. He is making a muscle, flexing his arms. He is sticking his head right out of the dirt that day, just like any ordinary Swabian citizen would. At least that's what Mr. Jones thinks until he sees a beautiful blue ox on the horizon. The blue ox is giant, sir. I saw it over by the well. The blue ox is enormous, sir, but I swear it is sad. Why, yesterday, and it was only yesterday, but today is just today. Why, it was only yesterday that I saw a big blue ox, and it was crying. And you call that electioneer rhetoric, Jones? Well, says Lord Burlington, laughing, if you'd just stopped looking in the mirror, you probably would have noticed by now. There is smoke from millions and millions of fig cigarettes in the air, and there are too many tall trees on the ground. Everyone has grown melancholy because of the rain. The wind blows. There's a grassy meadow and cows and geese, a beautiful blue ox. Esmeralda looks on the ground and is pleasantly surprised not to see the grave of her father, Mr. Jones. It is early fall and the ground is covered with acorns. There will be plenty of acorns this year, Esmeralda sighs. She's already started the catalog in her mind. Acorn candy, acorn bread, acorn soup, acorn salad with spinach and parsley dressing. The spirit decided to study goodwill scientifically. Hey, honorable, says Esmeralda, hand me one of those Slavian squares, the big ones in the purple packet. I don't know what you're talking about, says Dr. Honorable, laughing. He's trying to make himself look empty and useless. Come on, honorable, I know your secret vices, she says. You are my good and true ally, which is saying everything. And I'm not being unduly wistful, and there are no two ways then there are no two ways of saying it. You see, I know when you're telling me filthy lies about the things that I know to be true. That is an all-important skill, says Honorable, tweaking his jacket pocket and producing none other than the slender little Swabian fig square. The white wrapping on the outside of the cigarette looks as delicate as flag paper. Everything looks flimsy and a little filmy. Everything is really good now. The war is over, and Esmeralda has settled into a comfortable life. She has a nice apartment with a good couch. And on the weekends, she goes out on dates with handsome professionals, balneologists, watchmakers, doctors, Lord so-and-so, flag paper manufacturers, people who are the hub of the center of commerce. She has dinners with round orange beacons, elemental zests, loquacious volcanoes, well-clocked sunsets, shy barometers, frank auroras, stingy tidal waves, tender mudslides. She has a nice wardrobe and can charge things to her credit card. And she's in love so much and so often that she's spending all her money. But Dr. Honorable, being her good and true ally, is secretly worried. He thinks he feels her pain as acutely as he feels his own. And the war is over, but Jones is dead again, lost to the war effort. His body was real, and there was a pool of blood, and a knife, and a gun, and a mace, and a battle axe, and a long sword, and a dagger, and a pistol, and a ray gun, and a javelin, and a club, and a rack, and an iron maiden, and a scimitar, and a poison, and another kind of poison, and sand in the lungs, and a blunt instrument, and a missing hand, and brass knuckles, and a club, and a bludgeon, and a truncheon, and a stick, and, a no and noxious vapors, and a slingshot, and a crossbow. And Esmeralda is refusing to, dis to discuss any of this. Her problems stem from the inside out, because the war is over. Everything is really good now, and no one has done anyone any bodily harm in at least a week or two. And who could remember the last time that happened? Most of the time, there are problems everywhere you look. And Dr. Honorable knows Esmeralda. He knows when she is healthy and when she is sick, and this makes him her true ally. Hey, Honorable, look out there over the coast. Do you see that flock of seabirds? Should I send them a good gust of wind, make it as cold as a cavern, as a gulch, so that they shiver and wake up out of their dreaming? 
Now Dr. Honorable has been Esmeralda's best friend since the second grade, and he knows that it isn't like her to say such things. She's seen the universe all wrong, and he knows therefore to be worried, and to therefore try and produce a curative effect upon her, either through language, or through medicine, or through science, or through simple care, i.e. seeing outside himself. The four classifiable forms that a cure can take. When they go to sleep that night in their respective apartments, he will try many different things, all of them equally real. He will take a picture of Esmeralda and Mr. Jones that she ripped in two and glue it back together again. That will be medicine. And he will take a picture of her and paint a new mouth over her old one so that she is smiling, and that will help. And he will give her aspirin, that will be good, and sulfur, as well as talk therapy, and that will also be medicine. And he will give her horse tomato soup and some wholesome dark bread. And then when they go to sleep, each in their respective homes, he will try to walk over to her dream house and knock at the door. She'll refuse, but she'll open the latch to the chimney, and he'll float down, landing feet first on the soft, quiet carpet in his gooseberry shoes. He'll light a fire and light his mahogany pipe, fill it with fig tobacco, and they'll talk, openly and honestly and figuratively. And his dream will be fulfilled through the medium of words, and she will not consciously register this dream, but this dream will help her. And he'll take this knowledge secretly because he's a man, and that will be medicine. After all, Esmeralda fell to dissipation. That would not only be bad for her, but the whole of Swabia, as well as the air itself. And we can't risk more hurricanes or more birds being snapped out of their sleep by unseasonable weather and winds. Too many have already been lost that way, and we can't afford to lose yet another. Not even one. We cannot suffer one more loss. There are no two ways of saying it. We cannot suffer one more loss. to have plants make music and they're usually fed through a synthesizer and I don't know exactly how the technologies work through a range of frequencies but they're but you can interact with the plant and basically as you're interacting with the plant it makes music and it's it's simultaneously kind of interesting and disturbing because on the one hand it's filtering it through this kind of horrible mediation like you know that plants don't sound like synthesizers um, but it's an interesting interactive project, and at least it kind of brings their sound into our world a little bit more concretely. So I took that as my cue, and so what I did was I initially wrote a series of pieces using a lot of somatics, um, specifically with irises. So I would smell orris root, or I'd ingest something, and so I was trying to first create somatic iris poems, I guess for lack of a better term, and then I wanted to see what the irises would do with them. So I recorded myself reading those um, pieces and sent them off to my friend Dan, who does programming poetry. And then he, he 
figured out how to work with a sort of similar technology to the music. And he hooked them up to little electro devices where they can sense ranges of frequencies. And then they could interact with my words to basically form their own versions of the text. Is that exciting? <laughs> Yeah, he mapped the yeah he mapped the frequencies to different words, and so then they were able to interact with it. Yeah. Uh, along the lines of collaborating with plants, uh, could you speak a little bit about your own collaborative process? Uh, sure. <laughs> what do you want to do? Well, I, I I know that you have a, you've collaborated on a few projects, and mm -hmm. I'm interested in uh, this last one where, um, in just in the process of of how this allegory is being built and this and this imaginary world uh, and if I guess I'm interested if, if there was like some sort of preconceived notion or if the the details in the world revealed itself as it, as it was written uh, yeah. well well this this particular text um, one of the things we, we've done and we did with this text is there's a couple texts that we are interested in studying so this text we're actually um, using Paracelsus the medieval alchemist and Scientist, a text of, of Paracelsus, um, and reading that, and then kind of doing writing, you know, writing exercises through that. So, so that's that's kind of the conceit of the um, of the actual allegory. It's going to set up for each each section, actually, out of Paracelsus' text. Um, the world itself completely revealed itself to us. <laughs> but we would often we would get into a room and we would maybe read a passage or a page from that text, and then we would give ourselves like, okay, now we're going to write a response to that for five minutes or something, and then the world just kind of started. And yeah, it becomes really uncanny because you start to find that you're thinking the same things. Like, like he'll write a thing about blue shoelaces, and I'm like, I've read about blue shoelaces in the same passage. So it's kind of interesting how that happens. And then, and then in this one, and, and another one that's similar to that, we end up having probably you know, a few dozen kind of common operators that we kind of deploy back. You know, they, so all the threading, the threading that goes through there. So, so the characters, all
it's different plants. I had him go around. He lives in, um, what's his name? Yeah, he lives in Detroit. And he just, I made him go kind of around and find plants in Detroit. <laughs> and so there's like rhubarb and trees and things like that. And what was really interesting, I actually had, um, in one of the projects, I had the trees translate some pieces and I kept choosing the names of trees as like the words that they favored. Which is really, I thought that was interesting. That's what I kind of want to ask is whether or not, I know it might sound silly, but if you could like discern kind of like the personality. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's like different syntactical signatures, I think, in each of the pieces. And what I thought was interesting with the irises is they really favored themselves. (laughs) And they did I. Um, I think more than the other plants did when they were translating the, the iris poems. So yeah, there's definitely some sort of um, subjectivity, maybe not what we would call subjectivity, but or an Oedipal subjectivity at work, yeah. I have a question about the other book, just a flip-flop in the collaborative. First, I just want to say that you guys should exchange email addresses and collab on the next oh, plant thing, because there's obviously <laughs> plant synergy going on. It should be like a field of plant literature. Um, I'm just curious about the, the like Johnny Appleseed fable Kind of feeling to that other world. Um, I, I mean, I'm going to talk in really crass generalities, but it's kind of trendy now to um, work with and through pop culture um, in greater writing, and likewise to think about other worlds in terms of like either sci-fi or like revolution. I'm going to talk about Occupy, or I'm going to talk about uh, the Arab Spring, but like literal political revolutions been entering people's word pop culture. And so I'm always curious about works that seem to really just turn <laughs> somewhere very different. For instance, away from the TV, um, where we're not looking at pop culture and like in media politics, but we're talking about similar things like world building, transformation. I'm interested in maybe just a little more about why alchemy? Why are you guys reading about alchemy? What's the interest in playing with not just al- allegory, but it has, I think deliberately, an old timey feel to it. I know there was a ray gun in there, but never despite these elaborations. Um, it kind of felt like like strange like settler narratives or something, you know. And the naming too is really playful, like giants. Doctor I don't know, where are these names are coming from. Uh, maybe a little bit more about just the content you're drawing from what you're interested in. If not specifically alchemy, then just a wider maybe leaning away from some of these other trends that are Yeah. Well that's a that's a it's a it's a big question. I mean you want to talk about? I mean, this this particular text has um, has you know I think it's presented um, ambiguously, but it's it's kind of filled with more politics. So there is there is that part of it. I mean, not the trendiness. I mean, we kind of we felt like we were a little ahead of the curve on some things with this one. Although <laughs> 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 there's a lot of references to the Karen to the Human League, but like, don't you want me to be these? That's true. That's true. We do have. Synth pop does come to you. Well, I think part of what we started with was just a simple, a simple idea of the idea of like making something better or making something worse. And and I think for some reason alchemy just resonated with that. Also, I think we just have personal interest in that old practice of getting to know something through alchemical methods as opposed to um, other means of gaining knowledge about something because it's so tied to uh, imagination as a scientific practice, or... And, and also, I mean, in the Paracelsus about, I mean, what's, what's interesting to us, too, is also about, um, you know, kind of 
dissolving the binary between poison, you know, poisons and cures and those kinds of things. And, and part of what's really interesting in Paracelsus's text is um, is how much she actually talks about working with poison as as the cure, right? So so the book is actually is actually meant to uh, to do what the title says, right? Just to, to cure the world of wrongfully and ill will competition and all those those things, right? So that was part of it too. Part of it is, is this idea of, of, you know, of working with um, working with poisons and, and the characters and the milieus in there are are all of you know we've created a very toxic world and, and part of it is, is um, I think working out the, the toxins in that, in that world so we don't have to so you don't. Have to. <laughs> and so in the end, breaking down the binary, so allegory becomes a form of science in a weird way. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, there's a lot in, in um, this, this chunk. It's, it's a pretty dense text, and this chunk gives you kind of an idea, but it, there, there's actually like a lot. You know, there's a lot of time. There's even more elements in there. It's a long book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, so, so it does become, that part of it becomes a pair more. Process you used to write this book? Was there? Yes, to, to write that, to write the book called Not Blessed. Mm -hmm. Not the one I read from, for, for those of you uh, don't, don't know my work as well as I. Now, um, that, that book, um, the process in writing that book, the main process was there was a story that um, I couldn't remember, like I, Harold, couldn't remember. It's actually, it actually turned out to be a Saki story, which is actually in, the, in, in that text. But there's a story that I couldn't remember um, that's by, by the, um, the early 20th century short story writer named Saki. And um, for some reason I was, I was, you know, I found it very important to um, remember that story at the time, but I couldn't remember the story. So I decided to sit down every night and try to reconstruct the story that I couldn't remember and then actually turned it to death. Mm -hmm. So it was a series of writings that I did on a, on a nightly basis for, um, for, for several weeks. And, the beginning of it was always trying to actually reconstruct the Saki story, but then I turned it to that. So, so that's the hunter coming back through the window. And, uh, how did you learn how to write, and how are you teaching yourselves how to write now? I think, um, well, I eat plants, <laughs> so that's a big part of the process. Um, I think for me, um, I always start with some point of curiosity, and I think this kind of goes back to the alchemical thing of like trying to understand something through the stories that it carries. And so that's, when, in essence, what often launches a project of some kind, if you're going to call it a project. Um, because I think right now, I think when projects happen so quickly some of the times, like, oh, I'm going to write a quick project on like, Keening, or you know, the practice of like keening in Ireland, like whaling or something like that, and you spend like a year with it, that's not enough time. Um, I think we feel sometimes entitled to know things too fast mm -hmm. or to claim a lineage of some aspect of knowledge too quickly. And so, for me, it's really about like, A, I don't come entitled, and then I also understand like this has to be like a real engagement, and that includes body and that this has to really unfold over a period of time. And then I'm always really fascinated to see how predictive writing becomes while I'm in that process. 
um, how I learned to write, how did I learn to write as a child or teach myself to write? Is that a question? How did you learn how to write literature? You can talk about that. Well, I learned to write, I mean, um, I learned to write, I think, because um, my mother wrote to me, for one thing, and then um, my sister, my older, I have three older sisters, the eldest of whom was nice enough when I was about 12 or 13 to give me a journal and told me to write, and I started doing that, especially when I would wait for the bus at my home in the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles, and um, write in journals, and then what happened was, which I still practice today, I just started to write and not stop as, as the main kind of practical core thing with my practice. And through that, um, I started to, so while, you know, kind of practicing writing and not stopping for, for periods of time, um, I got to the point now where I can actually start to, you know, I can write and not stop and also think about how, um, what I'm trying to do with the writing while I'm doing it Probably initially it was probably an unhealthy motivation to, to get A's at things <laughs> because I was one of those children who needed that as an anchor. So and I didn't get A's in math and I didn't get A's in um, you know sports, but I did. I got validation in that. So I think that's probably what ultimately prompted it. And I, as of when I was really little, I would obsess over Daniel Steele novels, and so I would just write and soap operas. So I would just write like long soap opera texts basically, and I got and validation and that's so neither of you said the workshop. And, um, workshop can work. Yeah, well, I, and you know, I, I'm asking some of the students in a teaching writing class, and, and, and we're like, you know, like we're deconstructing like even the possibility mm -hmm. of learning to write in the, you know, what would it look like, a utopian writing situation. And, um, and I was curious if, if the top of your head, anyone would say, like, I learned to write in the writing workshop. Well, what's, what's important for the workshop is, you know, Amanda and I, each other and became fast friends uh, in MFA writing school, right? In the workshop, so we actually went there. And uh, the most value—I mean, for me at least—the most valuable thing about the writing workshop was was you know making those kinds of connections with with people, with like-minded people, and then making things and creating that and carrying it on after and outside mm -hmm. the workshop. So, yeah. so in our case, I mean, you know, that that was. Uh, by far the most valuable part of, of the workshop was, was kind of what happened around the workshop and then after the workshop. Uh, and the workshop was, um, was you know, for me valuable always because I, I don't, I'm, you know, the writing part of me, I can become very introverted, right? So it's actually just the, just the regular having to have the work out in the world and, and, and represent it. So it's always very valuable, much more than the actual work. You know, this, you know, this should be in the beginning, I'm still kind of rooted in the plant discussion. Um, did you? Rooted. <laughs> did, did you curse at the plants at all ever? And like see what kind of, if like the poetry got angrier or anything? Um, no. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, they're translations. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't actually there for the translation process. Like, I basically read finite poems and then send them off to my friend. Although right now, we are now working on a project where it's hopefully going to be more like interactive in the moment. Okay. Um, why would you want to curse at the plants? Not curse at the plants, but you 
Because it's a process of translation, so are you looking at it as, were you looking at it as a situation where the plants were actually responding in some kind of response yeah. mode, or were, they, or, or were they actually translating the text? Both. Okay. That's yeah. <laughs> so the response is the translation, and the translation right. is the response, and so they're both conducting and, resp and responding. And also, importantly, Dan Ricker, um, collaborator, also in the workshop. Yes. <laughs> So would you say that different plants have different dialects? Yeah, That's I would say, or at least different syntax and cadence and interests in, yeah. Interests? I think, like, for example, like, I noticed that, like, irises seem to favor, like, excess, like, emotional excess kind of dripping, whereas other plants seem to sort of have maybe more of a sparseness or something like that. Do you um, think that we're seeing that because irises are so... You know, they're, they're purple with like royalty <laughs> and ostentatiousness. Like, are we seeing that or is that, uh, I still don't understand the whole um, <laughs> mechanism between us and them and the translation, the computer part. I yeah, well I think it raises a lot of complicated questions about mediation for one thing, um, because I said the finite, um, the finite, possibilities for what they could speak. Um, I'm trying to hone in on, on the question a little bit more. Um, I mean, are you asking about human projection onto the plants, or? You, you said that irises favor. Well, yeah, when I read through the translations that the different plants produced, there definitely seemed to be like syntactical signatures coming from the different ones. Like irises like purple prose? 
Yeah. <laughs> or there was it was less economical in terms of what they did. Um, whereas other seemed to be more economical in terms of what they were doing, or certain images kept coming up. Really cool idea. <laughs> Thanks. When is that book coming out? I think April. It all goes according to plan. Thank you. No. <laughs> 